0: How are we doing, Revolution? Woo! Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, we are going to be running through the Gospel Mark a few more verses. We're going to be—if you're looking at the Blue Bible, page 600. Uh, if you've got another Bible, we will be uh, jumping in and Mark 2:18. Through 22. So while you're turning there, um, just a couple of previews. One, um, tonight we're going to be talking about sacrifice and the necessity of sacrifice in actually living a life that matters and living a life um, where we have some peace and some joy and some happiness. Um, next week, I'm going to be talking about the necessity of rest and sleep and having some fun. And then the week after that, this is something you will not want to miss. Um, I will be on my way back, I'll be on a plane coming back from Arizona, so the sermon in two weeks will be delivered by our very own Eric Kimsey and Corey Reed. Those two are going to tag team and do a sermon. They have never preached, you know, really before. They've never done this here. They're going to do it together. I think it's going to be awesome. But if not, it's going to be a wonderful train wreck one way or the other. It's going to be fantastic, and you won't want to miss it. So that'll be two weeks from tonight, all right? So let's jump into the Gospel of Mark. Let's talk about that. I want to thank you for your prayers. This is the first uh, in in several months that I have closest I've been to pain-free in several months. And so things are getting better, and I appreciate those of you who have been praying for me. All right, let's take a look. Verse 18. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and, and everybody knew when they were fasting. We'll talk about that in a second. Some people came to Jesus and asked, Why don't your disciples fast? like John, John's disciples and the Pharisees do. Now, the Pharisees were a group that arose in Israel after what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Israel was always fighting for its independence, and, and they had a huge uh, revolution against the Greeks. They won their freedom for a while, but as soon as they won their freedom, this always happens, right? You have occupying force comes in, they tell you what to do, you get your freedom, and then the people spend all their time fighting about now who, gets to, who has the power. Right? So, one of the parties that arose in Israel that says we have all the answers were the Pharisees. Okay? And the Pharisees really believed that by kind of forcing a, a morality on people, they could kind of force God to bless them, kick the Romans out, give them what they wanted. Right? And that's what the Pharisees believed. And one of the things they did was they fasted. They fasted. Now, fasting is going without food for at least from sunrise to sunset. All right? That's fasting. Some people fasted 24-7. Jesus does that for 40 days in the wilderness. But the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday. Now, why Monday and Thursday? Well, here's why. The Bible basically says that the only time God really wants you to fast are on special Holidays, which we no longer celebrate this side of the cross, but in the Old Testament, like Days of Atonement, stuff like that, the Jews would fast. They would also fast if there was a national tragedy, if you're praying to God for healing, or if you're really just suffering and you're praying to God to you try saying, "Look, I'm suffering. I want you to notice. I'm very serious about this. How this much this hurts, and I need you to hear me." And so that's one of the reasons they would fast. It's an aid to prayer. But instead of doing it when that happened, the Pharisees said, we're going to do it every Monday and Thursday. Why? To basically be super righteous, right? To basically be like super self-righteous and and also once again in the hopes of forcing God to do what they want to do. So they say, why aren't you doing this? John's disciples do this. The Pharisees do this. But Jesus and his disciples are not fasting every Monday and Thursday. And they can tell because it's lunchtime and they're eating, right? Right? And again, you ate in houses, and houses did not have doors and windows. They basically just open. You had huge open spaces to let wind in. And they're sitting there stuffing their face. It's Monday, it's Thursday, it's lunchtime. Everybody else is fasting. They're eating. Well, what are you doing? Right? Verse 19, Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, verse 20, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Jesus says, you don't fast when I'm here because when I'm here, everything's good. When I'm here, I fix stuff. When I'm here, I kick evil out. So what are you going to be fasting for? There's no reason to fast. Now it's his time to celebrate. And in fact, this is, this is an anticipation of what will happen when Jesus comes back. Jesus says, one day I will come back, and when I come back, I'm going to fix everything. And when I fix everything, there won't be any need to fast. In fact, he says, I'm going to throw a big party, and there's going to be great food, and everybody's going to have as much food as they want. Right? No need to fast. He says this is like going to a party, like going to a wedding Now, if you were an Israelite and you went to a wedding party, if you were in attendance, you had absolutely no duties but to enjoy yourself. It was the family's role to make sure that they threw a party where you could just sit back and relax and enjoy yourself for three to seven days. Three to seven days. How would you like to film those for Bridezilla, right? (laughs) Three to seven day parties. And Jesus said, it's like that. Verse 21, besides who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. What does that mean? In both instances, Jesus is the new thing, I think. And what he is saying is this, that you know, if you try to take what Jesus is doing and, 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 and try to square it with the old rules where you're trying to earn righteousness rather than just accept the righteousness Jesus gives you on the cross, they don't mix. It doesn't work. And many of you have seen this because I know many of you, many of you have grown up in churches where they preach grace, but they practice self righteousness. Right? This is trying to take the new and the old and mix it together, and it doesn't work. Right? It does not work. But Jesus is not saying that he does not think his people should not fast. He says, while I'm here, you will not fast. But he says in Matthew, he tells his disciples, when you fast. In other words, when I go back to heaven, before I return, you will fast. Many of us here at Revolution fasted last January. Fasting is a wonderful thing, but why fast? This was a question many of you had leading up to last January. Why fast? Would a person fast? What is the point of going without food? How does it make me closer to God? How does it make me, you know, a better Christian to go without a meal? You're saying they're going, all that does is make me grumpy and grumpy is not good, right? What is the point? Now, here's the point. Fasting is one of the tools in grace upon grace that God has given us to help kick our selfishness out of ourselves. It is a way, it is a tool that God has given us in order to make us more dependent upon Him, less dependent upon ourselves, less trusting upon our other things like food and to seek to take comfort in Him instead. I don't know how many of you have ever been there. How many of you have ever ate for comfort? I'm the only one, right? Um, I just got done fighting a huge you know, post-operative infection. It was one of the most painful things I've ever gone through. And I spent weeks where basically all I could do is lie on the couch on my stomach, because it was on my back. I had to sit there on my stomach, and you sit there, and you watch... TV for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours, and I ate bags and bags and bags of potato chips, right? If you bought stock in Con's potato chips last month, you can thank me now, all right? I promise you it doubled in the last month, right? We do this. We do this. We look to other things for comfort. We look to trust other things. That's where we go. And you're saying, but wait a minute, okay, but the Pharisees fasted. John, you know, they, it says the Pharisees are fasting and they're self-righteous jerks. So obviously that can't be it, can it? It's not just the act itself. It's the attitude with which you approach the act. I had people come up to me last December and go, I'm really excited about this fasting thing. I need to lose some weight. It's not about losing weight. I tried to tell people, I said, look... You will fast, and you can fast the entire 30 days, and you will lose weight. And by February 14th, it'll be all back. It comes right back. Trust me. Right? I've doubled it since then, largely because of Khan's potato chips. It's the act and the attitude with which you approach it that makes all the difference. ...in the world. The Pharisees did it. The Pharisees did all kinds of things. The Pharisees were actually... If you look... Today, the problem with the religious landscape in America is... ...we would look at the Pharisees today and go, they're good people. They don't get drunk. You know? They don't go watch R-rated movies... ...except for The Passion. They don't do that. They don't cuss... They give money to the poor. They fast. They're good people. And Jesus says, no, they're black-hearted. Because they did all those things out of selfish desire. They did all those things to be seen. They did all those things to get something in return. They did those things to feel better about themselves. They didn't do it just for God. Right? How do you get the attitude to approach this correctly? Here's the problem we have. The overall problem we have is we have an overinflated sense of self. We really do. I grew up, I, I was born in the 70s, raised in the 80s, most awesome decade ever. And it was. And we had Back to the Future. Did you? No. There, <laughs> I win. Um, so, and that's right. <laughs> so, I totally lost my train of thought. So, somebody yelled Motley Crue, and now I can think about is going to see Motley Crue in 1987. Um, <laughs> and I did. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, here's where all this really started to bubble up. The whole thing started to bubble up at the self-esteem movement. Everywhere, all you heard was the problem with people in low self-esteem. Right Now, that was really easy to sell because it sounds so non-judgmental, right? Any problem somebody has, low self-esteem. What's your problem? I'm an axe murderer. You just don't love yourself enough. That was really what people said, right? No matter what's your problem, you just don't love yourself enough. You've got... Low self-esteem. And we spent all the 70s and 80s and 90s telling kids they just need to like themselves and to love themselves and to be okay with themselves. How's that working out for us? Right? If you think that's worked, try to say excuse me and go around someone in Walmart. You might lose an arm. Right? Because... We now are in a place where everybody thinks that they are the center of the universe, everything rotates around them. And that's because we now have high self-esteem. All of us do. (laughs) Wonderful. That's just wonderful. It doesn't work. A number of psychologists now are coming out and saying, "Uh, we kind of screwed this up. Actually, we're now finding studies where the most dangerous human beings in the world have high self-esteem. Right? I mean, some psychologists are saying from tests that they've looked at, Hitler had high self-esteem. Right? That the problem is not high self-esteem. So we've got this entire cultural thing that we've got. When my parents, in my parents' day, you know, they had this antiquated idea that there was right and there was wrong... And if you did something wrong, they told you to stop. Today, right, everything is turned into a Springer show. Right? Do You remember Springer? Right? As soon as you confront someone about their wrong, it's, you don't know me. You don't know me. Right? (laughs) Automatically. Doesn't work. Hasn't worked. Not going to work. We need to take the Bible seriously about the natural state of the human ego... ...and the natural state, who we all are, which is not good. Our default setting, as I said last week, is selfishness. Is it not? Right? If you you really need proof that our default setting... Um, It is not selfishness. Remember what I said when I preached last time about friendship. And I described what a great friend is. And I asked every single one of you if you sat there and went, Oh, that is what a great... I would love to have such a friend like that. We all did that. We sat there. I described the four traits of a great friend. And all of us sitting here, myself included, said, Yes, I would love to have a friend like that. None of us ever stopped and thought, No, I need to be a friend like that. Because our default setting is, what can I get? Right? There is a, there's a counselor at Fuller Seminary that, that likes to that put it this way. I've quoted him many, many times. But it, it, it bears repeating because he was absolutely right. He says, the problem today is we define love in America as being loved, not loving. Does that make sense? Every relationship we have, we think about what we can get out of it, never what we can put into it. Right? And that's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely absolute disaster. See, here's what happens. It's a cliche, it's an old cliche that we have this we have this hole in our in our being that's reserved for God, and that anything else we put in there doesn't work. Well that's true, but here's the real problem. Now we have all this need for God, and we have this whole design for God, but anything we put in there is actually just too small, right? And anything we put in there is just going to rattle around. It's not going to fit. It's not going to work. And the result of that is the state we're in now. Here's what I've learned over the last couple months with fighting off this infection and going through this physical malady I, I, the infection started in my tailbone. Nobody thinks about their tailbone until it hurts. Right? You don't sit there, you have never sat on a couch in your life and gone, thank God for my tailbone. Isn't it wonderful my tailbone is working today? You have never leaned back and gone, thank God for the tailbone. We don't do that. But if you busted your tailbone, bruised your tailbone, hurt your tailbone, you're going to go, ah, stupid tailbone. We will do that, right? We don't notice something in our body until it hurts, generally, right? Something's wrong with it. When something hurts, something is wrong with it. Ever had hurt feelings? It's no different. You know why we get depressed and sad and lonely? It's not working. There's something broken. It's not working. And all too often, it's not working because we have this inflated sense of self. You think about the ego. The ego, in and of itself, is fine, but it's like a balloon. I forgot to bring a balloon, so you're going to have to do your best imagining. I I, I was going to bring a balloon today, right? If you blow up a balloon to the way it's supposed to be, it's fine, right? What happens when you overinflate, begin to overinflate a balloon? It comes dangerously close to popping, if not absolutely busting, right? It becomes fragile. A balloon typically is not that fragile until it's overinflated, Right? You overinflate anything else, and that's what's happened to our egos. Because we have come to the fact that we've tried to take God's place, and we do take God's place, every time we sin, we take God's place. Because every time we sin, we say, I know better than God does. Right? And when we try to take God's place, we have an overinflated sense of self, and it becomes fragile. And when it becomes fragile, what happens? If somebody criticizes you, you you get angry or you crumble, right? You get really ticked off and you fire right back. That can't be true. I won't accept that. I'm going to attack you until you take it back because my ego cannot take criticism. So therefore, I am going to batter you until you agree that I am perfect. Or I'm going to go in the corner, curl up in the fetal position, suck my thumb and cry. Right? That's what we do. That's an over-inflated ego. That's taken us beyond where we should be. Have you ever met a humble person? Some of you may have never met a humble person in your life. A truly humble person. I had a professor in seminary that my wife and I just absolutely adored He passed away a few months ago from cancer, Dr. Charles Seibert. He was was one of my ministry heroes. He really taught me a lot. He was a humble person. And a humble person has two marks. Here's how you can tell if if there's a humble person. A humble person, number one, if you criticize them, will not blow up, will not fold but will consider your criticism of whether or not they believe it's true and whether or not they need to change it, based on what, change their behavior based upon what you've said. That's a humble person. You could tell Dr. Seibert, you know, I don't think you should do this. He'd sit there and go, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to go apologize for that. That's a humble person. A humble person will not, number two, a humble person will not fantasize about being someone else. You ever do that? But a humble person won't do that. A humble person will not. Here's why. How many of you live a life, and I'm the chief of sinners here, where you compare yourself to others? Ever done that? Right? Constantly comparing yourself to others. How you look, how much money you have, where you live, what you drive. Constantly comparing yourself to others. Why do you do that? What good does it do? Have you ever sat there and been fantasizing about being someone else and then all of a sudden you look down and you were thinner and better looking and richer? Ever happened? never happened to me. Right? I fantasize all the time about having a good preaching voice instead of the squeaky Appalachian thing I've got. And then when people play podcasts where I'm on, I want to die. (laughs) And it doesn't matter how often I sit there and want a booming deep voice. It doesn't happen. I'm wasting my time. C.S. Lewis said, Pride, by its very nature, is competitive. It's that overinflated sense of self. It's that bloated ego. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others... ...wanting to be different. And it's just killing us. You feel like you're always on trial, don't you? Isn't that tiring? Don't you get sick of it? Isn't it just exhausting? It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. I first really realized this when I was in Hollywood. I lived in Hollywood for two years... And what I saw when I was around stars is that stars are the most insecure people in the world because they're constantly comparing themselves to other stars. They're constantly paranoid that they're going to lose their place. They're constantly paranoid that tomorrow they're not going to be what they are today. And so they never enjoy today because they're too busy worrying about tomorrow, right? I guarantee you, it's like five or six years ago um, when everybody thought Megan Fox would become a star, right? I don't know where she ended up. You know, she may be waiting on me at B Dub's when I get there later. I don't know. Um, she just disappeared. But and and they were calling Megan Fox. Do you remember this? The new Angelina Jolie. I guarantee you, I would bet every dollar I have. You know what Angelina Jolie did when she heard that? Panicked. Absolutely panicked. Wait a minute, she's younger. They're saying she's as pretty as I am. She's going to get parts I want. She's going to get... Here she is, a multimillionaire who never has to work another day in her life, married to Brad Pitt, and she probably had a nervous breakdown. Because constantly comparing yourself to others, right? That constant comparison, that constant living under trial, it all comes from this... You know, thing this overinflated sense of self where it's not enough that everybody's told me I'm somebody, I've got to be somebody, and everybody's got to recognize it constantly. Right? It's not a humble person. Why would you want to be a humble person? Because humble people. People who don't compare themselves to others. People who don't fantasize about being other people. People who take a genuine interest in other people. People like that are also peaceful people. They're loving people. They're happy people. And you say, okay... What does all this have to do with fasting? If you approach fasting with the right attitude, which is, I just want to get closer to God. It's not about losing weight. It's not about being self-righteous. It's not about being more religious than the other person. It's just about getting closer to God. It's about stripping away some comforts so that I can only seek to take comfort in God. And if you take that attitude towards it, you begin to strip away that over-inflated sense of self, that ego that's too big, that ego that demands to be recognized, that ego that becomes so paranoid, it's constantly comparing and comparing and comparing and feeling always on trial, always on trial. You get closer to God, you don't care anymore because here's the deal. This is what's most important. If you're a Christian, you know the gospel, you know that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins and lived a perfect life for you. The trial's over. You've already got the verdict. The verdict is you're done, you're perfect. In God's eyes, you're perfect, you're going to get eternity. The verdict's over. There is no more trial, it's done. Don't you want to live that way? Isn't that a better way than constantly living under that trial? Constantly living under that pressure? Jesus already underwent your trial. The reason Jesus goes to the cross is for you. He takes your guilty verdict. He takes all your imperfections. He takes all your failures. He takes it upon Himself, and He gives you His perfect life. The trial's done. We're finished. You have God. You have eternity. What do you care about anything else? Stop comparing yourself. Stop living with this sense of ego that you've got to be recognized. God loves you. What other recognition do you want? That's all that matters. And in grace upon grace, what he has done is said, Here, I'm going to give you this tool. I didn't just die for you. Jesus very well could have died for you and said, okay, I died for you, that's enough, you're on your own. You're going to feel bad? Hey, you got the cross, so deal with it. But he doesn't. He says, I'm going to give you these tools, this prayer and worship and fasting so that you can grow closer to me. And the closer you get to me, the happier you'll be, the more peaceful you'll be, the more loving you'll be. Are you tired of being judged all the time? Are you tired of comparing yourself all the time? I just want to lay that down. Start fasting. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you loved us enough that not only did you die for us, so that we would no longer have to face trials, but You also have given us, in grace upon grace, Your Bible, Your church, worship, prayer, fasting, so we can grow closer to You. We can kick our selfishness out of ourselves. We can leave all that comparison and judgment behind. We can just grow closer to You and not care, not fantasize about others, and not care about criticism that we get. If it's criticism that doesn't matter, it just rolls off of us. If it's criticism that does matter, we take it, we consider it, and we change because of it, and we thank you for it. To be able to live that kind of life, to not have the automatic anger, to not have the depression, to not have all those things that come with having an overinflated sense of self, To know that our true selves, that we are sinners, but we are still loved. To have that dual knowledge that gives us a real, peaceful, and good life. We thank you for that. And we worship you now in response to that. In Jesus' name, amen.